This week, uh, we are in our second part of the two-part series on Habakkuk, trusting God when life doesn't make sense. If you don't have a a Bible or an electronic device, uh, the men have some Bibles for you to use. Uh, If you just slip up your hand. Thank you. Um, So we are in Habakkuk chapter two. We're going to cover chapters two and three today. So while you're looking for Habakkuk, I know it's an obscure book that we we don't often preach from. Uh, If you need to look at your uh, table of contents and, and find it there. But while you're while you're turning to Habakkuk two, let me summarize what we talked about last week. We examined Habakkuk's life. We examined the context of of where he lived and what he was going through. It was a time of incredible moral and spiritual decline as the people of Judah rejected the faith of Abraham, Moses, and David. And out of fear, because the Babylonians were sweeping that area of the world, They put trust, not in God, but in their idols, in their political alliances, and ultimately in themselves. And so through this time frame, Habakkuk asked God a series of questions. And the Lord then responds in turn. And this question and answer session goes back and forth twice in chapters one and two. In chapter one, verses two and two through four, Habakkuk asked God to look at the wicked behavior of the people there in Judah with, he's essentially asking for God to vindicate uh, the evil that was being put on the righteous remnant uh, at the hands of the king. And then we see God's response in verses five through 11 in chapter one. And yet God doesn't respond in a typical way. It's unusual. Instead of addressing Habakkuk's appeal for help, he instead declares that he will in fact make things worse for them before it gets better. All of this at the hands of not an evil Judean king, but at the hands of the evil Babylonians. And so then we find Habakkuk responding a second time in verse 12, all the way through verse one of chapter two. He's arguing to God. He's, he's saying, God, your plan is not going to help us. You're not going to help the righteous. We need your help now. Instead, he's arguing that the faithful are going to be slaughtered indiscriminately and that the Babylonians aren't going to turn from their, their sinful idolatrous ways. And we talked about how Habakkuk was confused because his experience wasn't lining up with what he knew to be right about God. And so we find Habakkuk at the end of chapter one, the beginning of chapter two, trusting God, even though life didn't make sense at that point in time. And because he was challenging God, questioning him, he was bracing himself for the Lord's strong response. So we came away with four main points. God keeps his word, whether they're promises for blessing or warnings of judgment. The Lord answers prayer, 
but just not always how we expect or want him to. We also saw the Lord was sovereign and is sovereign and always at work. And that finally he brings crises into our lives to strengthen our faith. And so if you remember last week where we've left Habakkuk, he was in a state of tension. He was waiting the Lord's response and he was at that inflection point, that period of crisis where the entire trajectory of the remainder of his life would be shaped by how he responded. Much like what we experience, Habakkuk's life wasn't making sense. And so he waited to hear from the Lord in order to find out what was going on and how he should respond. And so before I ask you to stand in honor of God and his word, I just wanted to highlight, we're not going to read Habakkuk two and three. I encourage you to do that on your own. Perhaps read the entire book. It's a short book uh, later today or later this week, but I'm going to, I'm going to pick certain key verses that will hopefully get you to understand uh, the train of thought throughout uh, this important book from the Bible. So if you don't mind, please stand in honor of God and his word. We're going to begin in chapter one of verse, excuse me, chapter two, verse one of Habakkuk. And this is Habakkuk talking to the Lord. He says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. And I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Then the Lord answered me and said, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal and it will not fail though. It tarries wait for it for it will certainly come. It will not delay behold as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But the righteous will live by his faith. And then moving down to verse six, we're going to read five woes the Lord pronounces on the Babylonians. Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him, referring to Babylon, even mockery and insinuations against him and say, woe to him who increases what is not his for how long? and makes himself rich with loans. Verse nine, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Verse 15, woe to you who make your neighbors drink who mix in your venom, even to make them drunk. So as to look on their nakedness. Verse 19, woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake to a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. 
Chapter three, verse one, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. And then finally, verses 16 to 19. After hearing about what God is going to do, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Lord, there's so much truth here uh, for us to glean this morning. I pray that you would speak to us and meet our need where we are at. We come in with hundreds of different concerns, hundreds of different worries and problems, and we lay them at your feet. We know, Lord, that you and you alone have the words of life. So speak to us now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The parable of the elephant and the blind men is a well-known story that resonates in the American culture, where diversity is valued and multiple perspectives are promoted. It's all about six blind men who visit the Raja, the king's palace, and they encounter this elephant. The first blind man put out his hand and he touched the side of the elephant and he said, how smooth. An elephant is like a wall. The second blind man, he put out his hand and touched the trunk of the elephant. How round. An elephant is like a snake. The third blind man, he put out his hand and touched the tusk of the elephant. How sharp. An elephant is like a spear. The fourth blind man, he put out his hand and touched the leg of the elephant. And he said, how tall. An elephant is like a tree. The fifth man, he reached out his hand and touched the ear of the elephant. How wide. An elephant is like a fan. And then finally, the sixth blind man put out his hand and touched the, elef- uh, the tail of the elephant. And he said, how thin an elephant is like a rope. An argument ensued, each blind man thinking that his own perception of the elephant was the correct one. The Raja, awakened by this commotion, called out from the balcony. He said, the elephant is a big animal. Each one of you has only touched one part of this animal. You must put all of the parts together to find out what an elephant is like. Enlightened by the Raja's wisdom, the blind man reached an agreement. They said, oh, okay. Each one of us only knows a part. To find out the whole truth, let's put all of the parts together. And so the moral of the modern story goes something like this. We all have different experiences of the same reality. 
Therefore, whenever we find ourselves at odds with others, we should be humble and recognize our limitations of knowledge and our need for other perspectives and trust that others may grasp truths that we do not. This is a very heartwarming, a very non-offensive way to promote diversity of thought and tolerance of other belief systems since as it goes, they all point to the same ultimate truths after all. Yet there is a key point that this modern spin of the story misses. You see, there is one person in the story who does see the entire picture, the Raja, the King. If the King were also blind, there would be no story. The story is told by the King who sees the entire elephant. He has comprehensive knowledge. And unlike the blind men who in their darkness were not seeing the elephant truly, only he knows the full truth. The blind men need his revelation to understand and then accept the truth of reality because only the king could properly interpret what they were experiencing. And if you haven't figured it out yet, we are like those six blind men. We have limited knowledge. We have limited experience as we engage with creation which is represented by that elephant. Yes, it's good that we acknowledge our own personal limitations of experience and understanding, but let's be clear. There is a creator God who is set apart from his creation. He is the King, the one who sees all the one who knows all and the only one who can ever make sense of what we are experiencing to include the problem of evil. He and he alone has comprehensive knowledge. And in fact, he has revealed himself and the truths of reality to us. First through the prophets and then through the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ. So that we now have his knowledge, his revelation in the word of God in the Bible. And yet where we find Habakkuk at the end of chapter one is that he has limited knowledge. He has limited experience of what was going on around him. And so he needed the Lord to reveal how he was to move forward, how he was going to live his life. And so what we learn from Habakkuk is that God is revealing himself to us in this bigger picture. And it's this, that we as God's people must live by faith in light of his faithfulness, regardless of our circumstances and regardless of the personal costs involved. We must live by faith regardless of what our experiences are telling us, regardless of what it costs us, regardless of the circumstances. And that is what we are getting after today. And so if we look at the details of chapter two, beginning in verse two, we see the Lord's second response to Habakkuk. And here's the first main point 
of today's message is the fact that God is gracious. He doesn't rebuke Habakkuk for his limited understanding. But instead, what does he do? He reveals more and more of himself to Habakkuk. And in fact, the Lord wants him to record what he's seen from the Lord and share it with the people around him. This is important for us. God doesn't typically reveal everything to us. He only does so incrementally in steps. For example, think, think back to Abraham. Was he shown everything all at once when he was told to leave his homeland and go to the promised land? No. Think of Moses. Was he given all the wisdom and all the knowledge that he, he needed to, to uh, address Pharaoh and lead the people out of Egypt? No, it was given incrementally. And think of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Was she told that her baby boy would one day be crucified and be put on a Roman cross to die before her very eyes. No, she was not. Each one of these saints was only given what was needed to carry out the immediate task at hand. God wanted them to step out in faith and obey. And after that first step, he would reveal a little bit more. And what did that require of them? To take a second step and then a third step, and then a fourth step, on and on and on through the walk of life. As we move through life as a follower of Jesus, as Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, we need to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, what is that next step of faith that God calls you to do? What is that step where the Lord has prompted your conscience, has revealed a truth to you in scripture that you know you need to obey, but you're having a hard time doing so. That is the step God wants you to take. If you haven't taken that first step of faith and trusted Jesus as your master and savior to forgive you of your sins, all you need to do is believe on him, trust him, turn from your sins, confess them before God, turn away from them and say, God, I believe Jesus Christ is my savior and my Lord. Help me. I need you. You will be free from your, your, the slavery of sin and death, and you will be free to follow him. Why? Because the Lord is gracious. He is gracious and he is good. And that brings us to the second main point in verse three. The Lord's timing is not our timing. Habakkuk knew that God ought to act in response to evil. And in this, he was correct. He thought he knew when God should respond to evil, but in that he was wrong. God promises that the vision Habakkuk sees will certainly come, right? You look at verse three, this vision is yet for the, what? The appointed time. It hastens towards the goal. It will not fail. 
Though it tarries, wait for it. It will certainly come. It will not delay. It will not be delayed by whose account? By whose perspective? By God's. Sometimes it feels like God is slow to respond. I'm sure it felt that way for Habakkuk. In fact, God's judgment that he passes on in chapter two won't take place for roughly 60 to 70 years after he reveals this to Habakkuk. And that should show us that God's apparent lack of action, which may cause our faith to falter is in reality, only our inability to perceive the bigger picture of God's greater plan. Again, much like those blind men and the Raja and their experience with the elephant. Like Habakkuk, sometimes our life experiences force us to question God based on our understanding as limited as it is on how God should think and act on our behalf. Across the world and even in this very room, I'm sure that there are men and women, boys and girls who have undergone immense, unspeakable pain and suffering at the hands of other people. Some of us continue to endure such difficulty. But please know, God was with Habakkuk. God was with the people of Judah in their time of great need. And God is with you in your time of distress, in your time of need. He will bring the wicked to judgment, whether in this life or in the one to come. He is, and he will forever be holy, pure, free from evil. He is just. And yet we know he is gracious, not just to Habakkuk, not just to God's people, but he is gracious to all. He wants all to come to salvation. He wants all to repent and believe in him. And so we see this in our own minds, this dichotomy played out most clearly in the life of our Lord. We see the justice and the love of God poured out in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Fully God and fully men. Jesus, the son of God sent to bear our guilt, our pain, our shame and suffer this punishment on the cross for us. We see the wrath of the father poured out on the son, that justice perfectly distributed on the son. And we see the love of God in Christ's willingness to die for you and for me. The justice and the compassion and love of God on full display that we might have eternal life. And like Habakkuk, when we lose sight of this bigger picture of God's greater work, this plan of salvation, we may question the mystery of God's action or his seeming lack of action. So I encourage you, remember, living in faith involves continuing to trust God at his word, 
Even when our experiences, even when our emotions or our reason tells us to abandon God and to take matters into our own hands. And that leads us to verse four, one of the most important verses in the entire scripture. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. You see, the humble are contrasted with the proud. God is telling Habakkuk that this faithful remnant, who's already enduring persecution, who is already going through adversity through their own king, is going to endure even further suffering during this upcoming Babylonian invasion, and that they needed to trust him. They must live by faith in him and not be proud of their own self uh, self-righteousness, Unlike the political elites of the day, unlike the Babylonian cap, uh, conquerors, unlike the priests of the day, they needed to humble themselves and trust God. And that really gets down to the essence of what is central for you and for me and essentially all of human existence. And that's to know God and to make him known to know God and to take him at his word in essence, to trust him. And that's our third main point. The righteous will live by their faith, trusting the Lord, taking him at his word, despite our circumstances and despite the personal costs required. Going back to our story of the six blind men and the elephant, the men had to trust the Raja if they were to accurately understand reality. And so so it is with us, our need to trust God and to put our experiences into proper context with that bigger picture of reality. Now I said, verse four is, is a key passage in scripture. And the reason I said that is because it's one of those verses that all of new Testament theology hinges upon. In fact, the apostle Paul When writing the book of Romans, he centers the entire thesis of the book of Romans on this one verse. He quotes it in chapter one, verse 16 and 17. And he uses this understanding of the righteous will live by his faith to argue how we need to uh, live before God. And then in the book of Galatians, He also uses it in chapter three, verse 11 to demonstrate that none of us is declared righteous by God for what we do, what we say. None of us is good enough for God. That is by faith. The author of Hebrews in chapter 11, he talks about this great hall of faith. These men and women who gave up their lives, who sacrificed themselves for, for God. And yet, How did they do so? How were they empowered to do so? It was because they lived by faith. And so while Habakkuk at this point in his life doesn't fully understand the implications of verse four in chapter two, we're going to see him later in chapter three, live this out, flesh this out in, in verses excuse me, in verses 16 to 19 in chapter three. And again, the meaning of our life 
and the possibility of being right with God flow from faith in God. Not by what we do, not by what we say. So after reminding Habakkuk of his need for faith, only then does the Lord answer Habakkuk's questions regarding judgment of the Babylonians. That is our fourth main point. The Lord is always just. The Lord is always just. We read the five woes scattered throughout chapter two. And a woe simply means pay attention, look out, beware. God, in fact, is going to bring judgment on the Babylonians for what they will do to Judah. But again, it's not according to Habakkuk's timeline. He was called to suffer along with the people. The Babylonians punishment would only come decades later in 539 BC. So for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize the rest of chapter two. But again, I encourage you to examine them in detail later. So here are the five reasons God brings judgment on the Babylonians. So the first woe beginning in verse six, going through verse eight, they were greedy. They were much like thieving, greedy money lenders. They destroy people. They destroy the environment. They could care less about anything, but making themselves profitable. And the result was this. God was going to exact justice upon them. Verses nine to 11, they were guilty of pursuing national security at any cost. They plundered conquered lands, resources of stone and lumber, and they lived such an extravagant lifestyle. They had such power and wealth that the Greek historian Herodotus stated that Babylon had this incredible wall with a hundred bronze gates. That wall was so wide, so strong that a four horse chariot could run upon it. They were the superpower of the world at that time. And what was the result? God would use their plunder as evidence against them. The third woe verses 12 to 14, they were violent and they unjustly used their power. They lived out the motto, might makes right. And God says, your kingdom is going to be destroyed, but my eternal kingdom, my glory will one day fill the entire earth. Verses 15 to 17, they were guilty of dishonoring their enemies. And God talks about his judgment upon them as he refers to a cup. And that is a metaphor throughout scripture that talks about this utter shame and violence. It's uh, it graphically describes um, the, the pain, the, the wrath of God poured out throughout scripture. And we read about Christ in the garden of Gethsemane. You know, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. It's talking about this cup of wrath poured out upon him as the son of God. You see God's the father's wrath against the perversity and shame of sin was pulled out, poured out fully on Jesus on the cross. 
The Babylonians were going to experience that wrath, but it wasn't fully poured out upon the world until it was poured out on Jesus. The just for the unjust that we might have eternal life. It was undiluted in its anger, in its power, in its strength. And so even God in his wrath demonstrates his goodness. And then we see the fifth woe in verses 18 to 20. They were worshiping their false gods. And the end state of this is that all these false gods will be shown to be empty. And that all will ponder God's awesome, fearful presence in reverential awe, in silence. As we see in verse 20, the Lord sits in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. This includes not only the evil ones enduring his righteous judgment and his people who are questioning his goodness in his seeming delay. It includes you and me. All the world will sit in silence before him. One commentator summarizes chapter two this way. Such a word from God implies that the turmoil and violence and death in our societies may not be evidence of God's absence from our lives, but instead the witness to his actual working in judgment as he pursues his purpose. No event in human history, therefore, is to be understood as completely divorced from his lordly action and will. God is always at work, always involved, always pressing forward toward his kingdom. But the means by which he chooses to pursue that goal may be as astounding as the destruction of a nation or as incomprehensible as the blood dripping from the figure of a man on a cross. Let all the earth be silent before him. And so after hearing the Lord's response, what does Habakkuk do? His whole paradigm, his whole understanding, his entire perspective on his future, on his life is transformed. Habakkuk's response beginning in chapter three, verse one is no longer one of questioning. It's no longer one of perplexion. It's one of faith. It's one of joy. It's one of prayerful, poetic worship. Habakkuk's questioning, his fears, and his laments are changed into joyful songs of faithful praise. And why is that? Reading between the lines, we see that he has heeded the word of the Lord. He's reminded himself that God does indeed sit on his throne and in his holy temple. He has waited upon the Lord and has renewed his strength. He's quieted the noise in his soul and he's rested in the promises of his savior. Can you hear God's still small voice this morning? 
Or is there so much noise in your soul? There's so much anxiety, so much worry, so much anger, so much fear that you can't hear God speak to you. You might be like Habakkuk. You're looking at your future and it doesn't look bright. You're looking at your future and there's danger. There's questions. And you find yourself in a place of uh, uneasiness. And you just don't know what to do. Habakkuk tells us what to do. Wait on the Lord. Be silent before him. He's given us his word. He has spoken to us. We need to wait and be still before him. Just like Habakkuk. Habakkuk was transformed. And that brings us to our fifth main point. The righteous who do live by faith will be transformed by the Lord. They will understand that he is worthy to be worshiped regardless of their circumstances and regardless of the personal costs required. In fact, the structure of chapter three tells us that Habakkuk's prayer Psalm was to be used in the public temple worship. You notice there at the end of verses three, nine and 13, there's that little word that says Selah. That's a Hebrew word that just simply means musical interlude. It means to pause, to meditate upon what was just sung. And so this song of praise in chapter three was used in corporate worship to recount God's character in his works. And so God used Habakkuk and this internal turmoil that Habakkuk was feeling and wrestling with. God used that to transform Habakkuk so that he could minister to the people around him. Habakkuk ends up providing comfort, hope, and confidence. Not because of anything that he is or what he's said, but because of who God is and what God has done and what God promises to do. And so as a result of that, Habakkuk could trust God. Habakkuk could rest in God. He could have joy despite whatever the cost, despite whatever he faced, because he knew the Lord was going to be with him. And so it is with us. We can face an unknown future because the Lord is worth with us. And the Lord has promises promised to never leave us regardless of the personal cost involved. We can trust him and his word. Andrew Peterson's recent song. Is he worthy? I don't know if you're familiar with that song, but if you are not, I encourage you to look it up and listen to it. It captures the essence of what I think is, is Habakkuk very, very clearly meditate on that song and offer it as a, as a time of praise before the Lord, as you offer to him, your personal concerns, Andrew Peterson, is he worthy? So not only is chapter three, a Psalm of praise, 
But we also see that it is a psalm of submission. Habakkuk has been transformed by his encounter with the Lord. And instead of now coming before the Lord, asking why, how long, and, and almost coming across as attacking the Lord, we see this transformation taking place from chapter one now to chapter three, where his confidence in the Lord is seen even in the midst of crisis. We see it in verse two. He pours out his heart to God in chapters one and two. He does trust him. But then in verse two, what does he do? He can only hear that report and then pause and fear to reverently worship his God. God was gracious and yet he was firm in revealing his will. He told Habakkuk there was going to be a devastating future in the near term. And Habakkuk learned to accept that and to fear God. And he just prayed in your wrath, remember mercy. He then goes on in verses three to 15 to recount God's great works. And then we find him in verse 16. God, I, I've heard about you. I've heard all these things and my inward parts trembled. My lips quivered. Decay enters my bone. He was weak before God. He was in a time of great need. And he says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. In that moment of greatest need, what did Habakkuk do? He recounted God's works and he put them to music. This is the pattern we see throughout scripture. This is seen in, in the Psalms over and over again. I think particularly Psalm 42, Psalm 77. But we also see it in the New Testament as well. If you remember uh, Paul and Silas, they were thrown into prison in Philippi. And at about midnight, the book of Acts uh, chapter 16, verse 25 says at about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. In their moment of greatest need, they were at rest. They were joyful. They were hopeful and they were confident in their Lord. And what was the result of that? The Philippian jailer and all his household believed. And they continued to minister and advance the truth of God's kingdom to that entire region. And that's what we're called to do as well. However, we are living in the face of a generation that is all about me. It's all about being narcissistic. We're the selfie generation. Life is all about us. The number of followers we have, how great we look on social media. And it, it paints a picture that really does not reveal the, the truth behind uh, those uh, narratives 
that were, are put on social media. The reality is this. Our lives are not about us. The story of our lives is not about us. We are not the main character in our lives. The main character in our lives is our creator because we are created to glorify him. And until we accept that point, we will struggle until we humbly submit to his will and acknowledge he has the greater perspective. We will go through this life trying to address our problems in our own way. We will self-medicate. We will do things that don't make sense. And we will try these things and suffer the consequences. But when you do encounter the Lord in his glory, like Habakkuk did, you read through the, the old Testament and the new Testament. When these men and women of God have encountered God. And I hope most of us have experienced this for ourselves. When you truly meet God, you understand that your life isn't about you, that it's about him and that you as a created being will give up anything to glorify him to honor the savior who loved you first when you were not worthy of being loved. At that moment, you will be changed. Your perspectives, your priorities will be realigned to line up with God's greater plan. Your heart cannot help but worship when you experience God in his glory and his grace. And in reality, he will bring tribulation. He will bring suffering because our worship during these times of immense suffering is one of the most profound acts God uses for his glory and for the good of the people around us. We see that played out in the life of Jesus. Why would it be different for us? The point of greatest glory is the point of greatest personal need and greatest personal suffering. In fact, God may have tremendous difficulty in store for me, in store for you, in store for all of us. We look at our world. We look at this region. We look at what's coming down the road. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of questions. And yet, through it all, whatever happens, we must keep our eyes on God. We must keep our eyes fixed on who he is, what he has done for us, and what he's promised to do for us. Humbling ourselves, seeking him and his ways, just like Habakkuk. And that brings us to the point that not only did Habakkuk experience a deeper submission to the Lord, but he experienced a deeper trust of the Lord. He submits to God's authority and he's going to live by faith regardless of his circumstances and regardless of the, of the cost he's going to pay. Those verses three to 15, as I mentioned before, 
all these things, you know, he recounts how God worked with the people in the Exodus at Mount Sinai during the period of the wilderness wandering that God in all of his splendor, his power and his majesty, he was with his people through their suffering. He didn't remove them from it, but he went with them through it. Habakkuk was remembering God's character, God's actions. He was saying, God, you were faithful in the past for, for the people who went before me. As a result of that, I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to trust you with my present. I'm going to trust you with my future. And again, we must remember that the Bible must inform our thoughts. It must inform our emotions as we look to the world around us, as we go through life, as we process the information through our five physical senses, we are like those blind men. We don't have the full truth. We must trust God. Many of you may know the story of Elizabeth Elliot. She was born in 1926 and she just recently passed away in 2015. She was a missionary. She was a critically acclaimed author and speaker. And her whole life story was all about telling others about God's boundless love and his saving grace. Well, that message cost her dearly. It led her into the Amazonian jungle of Ecuador when she was at, when she was 30 years old. And she came with her husband, Jim, Jim Elliott who was then speared to death while attempting to make contact with members of one of the local tribes. He died with four other missionaries. Elizabeth, along with their young daughter, Valerie, they went back to the States and then would ultimately come back to Ecuador to live and minister to those very people who put her husband to death. She chose to forgive and demonstrate God's grace rather than retaliate. And as a result of that, that tribe came to believe in Jesus and they put their faith in him. And that changed the entire life of that tribe. She then returned back to the U S got remarried. And then four years later, her husband died of cancer. Familiar with suffering. This is what she wrote. The deepest things that I have learned in my own life have come from the deepest suffering and out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things I know about God. Like Habakkuk, Elizabeth Elliot was transformed by God when she trusted him despite her circumstances and despite the personal cost required. And we see this transformation very, very clear at the close of Habakkuk's book in verses 17 to 19. We see the verse, the just will live by faith lived out. He knows destruction's coming at the hands of the Babylonians. He talks about utter economic collapse and starvation in an agrarian society where everything depended on farming, what he's recounting here in verse 17 is nothing but 
destruction. Their entire nation, their entire way of life was about to collapse. And he knew it. But notice verse 18. Yet, I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. He has learned that incredibly rare skill to be at peace, no matter what he faced. He was like a deer on the steep slopes of a mountain. He was safe and secure despite, despite danger being all around him. We read about this parallel account from, from uh, Jeremiah in Lamentations 3. Jeremiah, who went through the Babylonian captivity and endured in immense suffering. In the midst of all this lament, focuses on the goodness and the grace of God. We also see the same response in Paul's inspired commands to us. So I encourage you to turn as we close to Philippians 4. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 4. The just will live by faith. And that theme is woven throughout scripture. And I want to close with this, this thought on how we can glorify God despite our circumstances, regardless of the cost. Paul, sitting in prison, chained to a wall, no future in sight from a human perspective, says this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Why? The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If you're in the Navy or the, Mil if you're in the, Navy or the Marine Corps, you hear often about spiritual fitness, mental toughness, warrior toughness. It's right here. This is spiritual fitness. We must live by faith because we have a good God who is faithful. We must live by, by faith, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of the personal cost. We are going to endure tribulation, but if we take God at his words, we step out in faith. He's going to reveal himself to us in a deep, powerful transformational way. And we're going to experience God and splendor and glory that the world wishes they knew. When we are transformed like this, when we give everything up to God like this, we are truly going to show a watching world what it means to serve the living God. And that he and he alone is worthy of their worship. And so... The Lord has told us these last two weeks that we can trust him even when life doesn't make sense. Amen. Let's pray. 
God, thank you for being you. I thank you for being perfect in every respect. Thank you for being love. Thank you for being just. Thank you for revealing yourself to us that we don't have to go through life blind and dark and fearful and anxious and angry. But God, we can be a complete peace and joy and live with hope because you are with us. God, may we be so enraptured by you, so consumed by you, that whatever we face, whatever difficulty, whatever problem we are staring down, we can have hope. And God, use us for your glory. Use us to advance your kingdom. Do a good work in us, not for, for our own sake, but to, de- to your delight and to bring more people into a saving knowledge with you. We love you so much. Thank you, God, for being with us. And as we go, may we go in grace and peace, knowing that you are good and you are faithful. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.